You know, the online world is great for so many things. It's great for making you laugh, it's great for entertainment, and every now and again you come across ideas or people that literally blow your mind. But I still think some of our best thinking happens offline. So join me, Nessa, on Offline Thoughts as I chat about some of the things I think about when I'm not online. I'm really glad you're listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. In today's episode, I'd like to talk about Israel and Palestine and specifically the onslaught that the Palestinians have been experiencing in what is the latest round of assault from Israel. And as a quick overview, so you might know that since October 7th, there was a surprise attack from Hamas in which they basically killed 1,200 Israelis. And in retaliation to the surprise attack by Hamas, Israel basically launched a campaign, a shelling campaign, where they basically were... Uh, were killing Palestinians indiscriminately. So since October 7th, the official recorded deaths from the Palestinians is 15,000, with 6,000 of those people children. So before I launch into the episode, I'll give you a quick overview of the latest news. So you might have read that on October 7th, Hamas launched an attack on Um, Israel. Um, Hamas by the United States is at least is designated a terrorist organization. So on October 7th, they launched a surprise attack in which they killed uh, 1,200 people in Israel, um, specifically Israeli citizens. In retaliation to to these killings, Israel basically launched um, a shelling campaign against the Palestinians in which they killed to date, have killed 15,000 people and 6,000 of those have been children. And I explicitly say that they are launching an attack against Palestinians and not Hamas exclusively because the way in which they're conducting this quote-unquote retaliation is that they're indiscriminately killing Palestinians regardless of whether or not they form part of Hamas. And obviously 99% of Palestinians aren't going to be connected to Hamas in any capacity. And what a lot of people feel, a lot of people internationally, and I say explicitly outside the U.S. just because the way the discourse takes place in the U.S. is different from other countries. So the way the international community is perceiving this latest onslaught is that they're basically using the October 7 attacks by Hamas as an excuse to perpetuate the violence that they have already been committing against the Palestinians. So what is coming out of the Israeli government right now is that they would like us to believe that what is happening right now, what they are doing against the Palestinians right now, is a direct consequence of what happened on October 7. But that would obviously be an ahistoric perception or or an ahistoric take on what's been going on, because of course the attacks against Palestinians long predate this October 7 attack. And I say ahistoric because as far back as the 1880s, um, Jewish people who support Zionism have been trying to expel Muslims Palestinians from that from that from their own country as far back as then actually what's interesting is when you read um so there's this great book called on Palestine by Noam Chomsky so when you read about the 1880 Zionist perception of what Israel, the state of Israel was going to look like, they used explicitly colonizing language. So they didn't talk about, for example, a Jewish homeland that was based on victimhood, i.e. being expelled from the uh, rest of Europe and therefore needing a place of security and a place where they could basically exist in peace. When they talked about Palestine in the 1880s, around the time that other countries were undergoing colonization for the first time, specifically countries in Africa and Asia, they explicitly used the language to colonize Palestine. 
However, when you hear the discussion that takes place in modern times, it's very much pray framed as though the Zionist agenda only started in the aftermath of World War II and what the Jewish population underwent in, in Nazi Germany. And the language why that narrative is adopted is not only because it's much more flattering than the original colonial roots of Zionism, but also that it's also designed to to distract from the fact that it's possible to both be a victim of a terrible thing, i.e. Um, Nazi Germany in World War II, while also accepting that it doesn't justify colonization of another people's land. And sometimes even when we're looking at the territory of what is Israel and what is Palestine, using those terms in, in, in quotation marks, you can forget how much the Israelis have taken over since, since the 1800s. Because actually right now, only 20% of the original Palestinian land still belongs to them. That is to say that Israel to date has taken over 80% of Palestinian territory. And what the On Palestine book, uh, the Noam Chomsky book, um, speaks about as well is actually in times of conflict when when the Israel-Palestine conflict is in the public domain and when there is invariably a peace treaty that's on the table, this is the time where Israel basically uses that time period to buy itself additional time to continue to take over territory while it's still negotiating peace. This is exactly what we see right now. So over the weekend, there was news that there was a peace treaty that is on the table. International community is trying to broker this peace treaty because um, because Israel has announced that they intend to go into the town of Rafah that is home to over a million Palestinians over this weekend in search of, quote-unquote, the final Hamas operators. Now, what's interesting about what the Israeli government is saying is that they're saying, we're happy to entertain the peace treaty and we will comply with the peace treaty as long as you allow us to continue the invasion of Rafah, which is an outrageous position to take because obviously a ceasefire means that you cease fires. So what they want is basically to be allowed over this coming week to be able to go into Rafah, continue to kill Palestinians, and also obviously seize additional territory while they extend peace talks indefinitely until they've taken over more land. And one of the ways in which you can tell that it definitely is about not only seizing land, but also just the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is because in in response to the criticism that, you know, the international community is leveling against Israel, what they've said is, their compromise is that they will allow Palestinians to evacuate from the area before they launch the attacks against Rafah. Obviously, that doesn't make sense because if their position is that there are Hamas fighters that are hiding in Rafah, then why would they allow those Hamas fighters to possibly escape with the evacuees? The only way that makes sense is if what their true motive is, is to have the Palestinians move in a way that looks as though the Palestinians have been given the choice to leave the area and they've selected to move that area. But of course, once they leave, they're not going to be allowed to come back because obviously the way in which Israel has taken over territory beyond just brute force is also through illegal settlements where it allows its, its Israeli citizens to set up permanent homes in Palestinian territories that are supposed to be specifically reserved for the Palestinians. So, of course, once the Palestinians leave Rafah, there's no way that Israel is not going to encourage further illegal settlements, and there's no way in which they're going to allow them to come back unencumbered. 
And if they are allowed back, I guarantee that like we have seen, like the other images we've seen of the sheer brutality and the sheer violence they've, they've enacted on Palestinian territories, they're going to bombard Rafah to such an extent that there will be nothing to come back to. Now, when as an outsider, when I'm looking at the news articles and I'm watching the story develop on our screen, one of the things I always think is, why don't they have, why don't the Palestinians have any recourse to justice? Why don't they have a government that can stand up for them? Why isn't the international community participating more? Why does it seem as though they are defenseless? Because when you look, for example, at what's going on in the Ukraine, so the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you see that Vladimir Zelensky, at least, the president, is visible on the world stage and is able to lobby various governments for resources. So right now, there are current resources being tabled in the billions uh, from the European Union and also from the United States. You don't see a unified government representation of the Palestinians on the global stage. I personally have never seen a prime minister, for example, on Sky News or on BBC or like on a mainstream channel advocating for the Palestinians and asking for resources and military support for them against the Israeli onslaught. So part of the problem is that they don't have a government that is effective. So they've got the Palestinian Authority um, that is supposed to represent their interests. But unfortunately, they don't have any resources. And also, they don't have much political or social capital to really move the needle in terms of being able to gain resources for the Palestinians. And also, a lot of Palestinians feel disillusioned by them in that they feel that since they've been in in power since the 1960s, they really haven't been able to defend Palestine against further onslaught, f- further onslaught from um, Israel. But the second important reason why they're defenseless is because essentially Israel is a proxy for U.S. interests in the Middle East. And it's easy to see this because even though the rest of the world is looking at what's happening to the Palestinians and they see that, you know, only since October 7th, 15,000 Palestinians have been killed, despite the fact that that's the main topic on most people's minds, they are still considering passing legislation to authorize additional resources to be given to Israel to continue its attack against Palestine. And the resources, by the way, are not just in terms of uh, financial resources, but the bulk of the resources are through military support. So it's through giving them weapons. And beyond just like the resource support of sending them weapons, the U.S. is also just clearly ideologically aligned with Israel. And that's why you see when you watch American content um, versus, for example, even just European content outside the United Kingdom, and then obviously content from the global south you see the narratives are just wildly um, different and the way in which the discourse is presented is also wildly different when you're watching uk us content you tend to see that the conflict is phrased is framed as a conflict between two equals so it'll have language that suggests that there is a complicated conflict that's going on in which both sides are aggressors against one another. Or it'll tell you about the Palestinian death toll, for example, but it'll make it a perpetratorless crime. So it won't explicitly list Israel as being the perpetrator of those crimes. It'll just let you 
fill in the clues or fill in the blank essentially and the problem with that of course is that in the public's imagination when you're hearing content because obviously especially young people who haven't seen like the endless cycles of israeli violence because for them this this latest round of attacks against the palestinians might have been the only experience they've had of visually seeing with their own eyes in real time israel attack palestine but obviously the older you are and i'm not even that old i'm only 31 you will have seen that it has there's been multiple rounds of these similar attacks when information is presented in this way in this perpetratorless crime way in which they might tell you about the victims but they don't tell you the perpetrator of the victimhood then there's a risk that you don't quite connect in your mind that the people aren't just falling victim by themselves so there is an active party that is doing something that is causing their their deaths and if you can't identify the active participant or the aggressor in your imagination then obviously you don't have a clear idea of you're supposed to be challenging in terms of wanting to stand in solidarity with Palestinians. So it's kind of like when people talk about domestic violence and they will say something like 20 women every day experience domestic violence. Okay, well, in your mind, then I've just created for you the 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 image of a woman who has experienced violence. What I haven't connected in your mind though is who is committing that violence against women. And obviously we know that 99.99% of violence perpetrated against women is by men. So there's a risk that when we don't identify the perpetrator and we only identify the victim and we don't connect the two, then you might feel empathy and sympathy for the victim in that scenario, but it doesn't necessarily coincide or go along along with actionable items because again there is nobody to direct that attention to there's nobody to hold accountable for in this case the violence that's perpetrated against the woman so a better sentence is to say that x number of women experience domestic violence you know 99 percent of the time at the hands of men that way you've identified a victim and you've also identified the perpetrator and because you've identified the perpetrator you're able to basically make a, an item list an actionable list of how to hold that person or that group accountable going back to the palestine israel example and the way in which it's presented in in american discourse and british discourse is that often we are presented with the plight of the palestinians so for example when you pick up the financial times you'll see a bombardment of a of a palestinian territory and you will see a mother with a child who is crying because obviously the child's been killed or you will see a whole town just completely destroyed and left in rubble and when you read the article it'll tell you about what's been happening to the palestinians but the way in which it's presented it feels very much perpetratorless it doesn't clearly identify that there is a perpetrator in this narrative so explicitly Israel is targeting Palestinians. It's been targeting them for a very long time. The reason for that targeting is colonialist ideals, even though it's presented in a very different way in different language. And it's trying to achieve its colonialist and its Zionist aims by basically any means necessary. So it's willing to kill Palestinians until there are no more, and it's willing to seize every inch of Palestinian land until it reaches its, its logical conclusion or its logical aim. 
So it's very important to frame the discussion for the benefit of people who this is their first time experiencing the Israel-Palestine conflict in real t- in real time just because they're young. Because when you don't identify it in an explicit way, then you're not only underplaying the agency with which Israel is acting, but it also means that you leave people directionless as to where to um, direct their activism. So in this case, it's not just the Israel, the Israelis that are killing Palestinians. It is also the United States that gives them the resources and the political support to be able to do so. And it's very important to include the United States in this conversation because ultimately what we see is that, for example, if you consider the BDS um, movement, the boycott, divest and and sanction movement, which is the idea that basically you're trying to not support Israeli businesses and you're trying to make it difficult for them to operate so that you starve them essentially of money and resources to continue to kill Palestinians. And also you that you create a, a politically difficult environment for them to continue doing what they're doing. That's useful, but it's less effective in the grand scheme of things because ultimately a lot of countries already and a lot of institutions already boycott Israel. And the reason why it has a limited impact on their capacity to continue to um, invoke violence on the Palestinians, it's because they get most of their support from the United States. They get most of their military support and most of their political support and most of their resources from the United States. Therefore, they're pretty much happy to continue to be a pariah state as long as they know that they can still get their weapons and their political support and their ideological support from the United States because as we know it's the United States foreign policy is highly influential so for example you will see that the United Kingdom tends to parrot what the United States says in many respects and explicitly in this situation and also just in in the in terms of how Americans perceive the issue a lot of publications are US owned they're US owned and they have international presence which means that they're able to shape their narrative in a very profound way. So a lot of Americans, for example, if they only consume American content that is produced by American interests, are not going to be aware that the rest of the world is looking at the U.S. in a, in a, in a way that says they are also integral to the ethnic cleansing and genocide basically that's taking place in Palestine. And this goes back to my point about making sure you identify the perpetrator in any scenario. Because again, if we're only focusing on the fact that Palestinians are victims and not in the, on the fact that there are malevolent actors that control the narrative and control the existence in a negative way of Palestinians and that they have a name and they have an identity we can point to, then of course it's not possible to challenge that power. And in this case, Israel is almost a secondary concern because although they are the ones that are exacting or perpetrating the direct violence against the Palestinians, they wouldn't be able to do so without the support, without the resources, without the weapons from the United States. So it almost feels as though Obviously, things are not mutually exclusive. You can do two things at the same time. But obviously, it's not it's not the most impactful to only direct BDS, for example, or protests or demonstrations only against Israel because, again, they are not alone in their aggression against Israel. Obviously, the U.S. and the support it gives to Israel is integral to the continuation of, of, of the assault against Palestinians. 
Now, directing our attention to us and just the average person on the street, what can we do about it? And, you know, I would say even just before going into the next section, there's a real pressure, at least in workplaces and at least just in public, where it feels as though you don't quite know whether it's okay to talk about politics in the workplace or whether it's okay to take a a a visual stance or a visible stance on a, on specific issues, especially when they're issues that can be sensitive for the reasons that I'm going to talk about. So even making this episode, I thought to myself, should I make this episode? It's been on my mind for a very long time. I've thought about doing it many times, but I also feared the consequences. I thought, is it going to be taken down? I thought, is it going to be labeled anti-Semitic? Or in general, is it going to be branded or brandished as just being too political in a way that alienates people? And the more and more I thought about it, the more I thought about how I thought about how it's never the wrong time to speak the truth and it's never the wrong time to exercise your own conscience, especially because when we think about the cost of of expressing ourselves and putting your thoughts out there for other people who might feel the same way, or even just challenging the conspiracy of silence that I was talking about, where I genuinely feel pressure to not speak about certain issues that might be inflammatory because workplaces apparently are supposed to be apolitical, even though obviously they're not. But I thought about how in real terms, it actually doesn't cost me anything. Even if my account was to be you know, deleted, or I was fired from work, for example, or people in my circle, like, distance themselves from me, whatever it is, like, those costs are always going to be literally inconsequential in the, in the face of what the Palestinians are going through. It literally doesn't cost me anything to speak my mind. And I think one of the reasons why people fear speaking just outside being, outside the fear of being like socially ostracized or alienated, or maybe like there being consequences to your professional life. I think also people just fear being branded or branded as anti-Semitic for talking about anything that pertains to Israel or Jewish people. And Israel is a really unique example in the sense that being Israeli and being Jewish are synonymous. In fact, it's actually, you can't be Israeli. So when you are an American citizen, you are called, or when you have an American passport or you're from America, you're called an American citizen. Whereas when you have when you are from Israel and you have a passport from Israel, then you are called a Jewish citizen. So the the religion is your citizenship, if that makes sense. So when you look at your passport, it won't say you it won't say, you know, Jane Doe Israeli as your citizenship. It would say Jane Doe Jewish as your as your in the place of where it should say citizenship. So in some ways when you're talking, it's very difficult to di- to distinguish between talking about the state of Israel and people as Israelis living in Israel and therefore being privy and being uh, responsible to a certain extent, to a large extent, uh, for what the Israeli or their government is doing to the Palestinians. It's like you can't talk about Israelis without talking about Jewish people just because of that quirk. Whereas, for example, if I was talking about Chinese people, 
um, let's say we're talking about trade and U.S. Uh, Chinese um, trade relations, I could talk about Chinese people without me talking about their Asianness. You know, so I could talk about them from a citizen level, from a national level, but their nation isn't connected to and to an inherent ethnicity or religion. You know what I mean? So it's not like you would look down at a Chinese passport and it would say. Asian. It would just say Chinese citizen, just like the French example I was giving. Um, was obviously that's not the same thing for um, talking about Israel. You can't talk about Israel without talking about Jewish people, just because that's the way in which their state is governed. There is no such thing as an Israeli citizen. You're a Jewish citizen, and I have to repeat this because it took me ages to 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 get it myself. So the fear of anti-Semitism is very real because literally those two things, being Israeli and being Jewish, are synonymous in a real, legal, tangible way. So anyway, the way to approach the conversation, in my view, is to first to recognize that there are many Jewish people all over the world who are agitating or who are act who are activists for the Palestinian cause, who do not support Zionism, who do not support what the Israeli state is doing to the Palestinians, and who are active and visible and agitating for the genocide against Palestinians to end. So when we're thinking about the, when we're trying to make sense of the discussion in our own minds, it's really important to keep that front and center and to not to not use it, even though legally in the state of Israel, that's what it is, from the perspective of engaging this conversation, obviously those two things are not synonymous. To be Jewish is not to be Israeli, and to be Israeli is not to be Jewish. And that's what the Jewish people who reject Zionism say. And that's what the international community that rejects the occupation of um, Palestinian land by Israel also say. They say that Zionism has no legitimacy and that there is no natural homeland um, for um, Jewish people and certainly not if it means displacing the Palestinians who have existed there for centuries. The second thing to note is that obviously Muslims are also Semitic so it's not really logical to say that you are being anti-Semitic by uh, standing up for the rights of Palestinians to exist in their homeland because obviously both groups in this situation are Semitic people. And thirdly, usually what's going on when when people accuse you of being of, for example, in this case, being anti-Semitic when clearly what the discussion is is not about being anti-Semitic. It's being like rejecting Zionism is not being anti-Semitic because Zionism in itself is a, is a racist principle that says, the Palestinians have no right to or claim to their own land. And so if somebody should bring up, you know, um, or or brandy you as being anti-Semitic for defending that position or, or, or rejecting that position, then it's quite clearly an attempt at derailing the conversation. Because usually what people who derail conversations want is that they want you to stop analyzing the, the whatever the discussion is, whether you're talking about sexism or racism, whatever it is, in this case, um, in this case, Zionism and colonialism, they want you to stop talking about things on a group and systematic or systemic level. And they want to reduce it down to the personal interaction you're having with that person at that moment. And they're also trying to put you in the defensive position because originally you're speaking on the offensive. So you're challenging 
a belief, an ideology, a practice. And what they would like you to do is they would like you to be in the defensive. So now you're defending yourself against being an anti-Semitic person, being a racist or whatever it is. But either way, you should recognize it for what it is, which is an attempt at silencing you and refocusing the conversation, not on what is imminent and important, but on the personal interaction that they would like to um, reduce the conversation to. So beyond um, engaging in conversations and challenging problematic opinions and pushing against the comfort of staying in our safe zones and not speaking up on issues, there are lots of other things that can be done as well. And one of those things is social media, which, you know, usually I rail against. But in this case, actually, digital activism is very powerful because most people are obviously on their phones. They're on TikTok, they're on um, Twitter or Instagram. And so that's how you kind of get information or new information in a really quick way. And also that's when you kind of take in information in a safe way. So when somebody challenges your opinion or your view or you see something that you feel like you should know but you don't know, when you when you experience all those feelings in a public space with other people, it can be daunting or embarrassing or a whole host of negative feelings can accompany that first experience. Whereas when you come across information in the privacy of your own home because you're scrolling through TikTok and you see a video of an American young woman talking about defending or signing for Palestine and talking about the U.S. propaganda against the Palestinians and the attempt of the administration to basically neutralize um, the, the brutal impact of what Israel is doing, you take in that content actually in a much more open-minded way than you would if somebody spoke to you about it on the street or at work, for example, because you're on your guard one on the street and at work you're on your guard as well because you're trying to think how you're supposed to be responding to that situation. If it's too political, who's watching, who's hearing in the conversation, are you going to show that you don't know enough about the issue? So there's lots of resistance or there's lots of barriers in having that initial exposure if you're not somebody who's politically engaged. So if you are somebody who does spend time online and has visible profiles, then even just talking about things on the public on the public platform means that one, not only people who are on the fences also get the courage to talk about these things, but it's also educational in that people who, for example, might not pick up a book or might not read the newspaper or might not turn the news channel on, they'll come across that content and it'll allow them to engage with the issue in a way that they might not have otherwise. And beyond just talking about in your platform, like making videos and making posts, even things like writing articles or posting photography or sharing articles you've read from other sources all contributes to the circulation of the information and the visibility of the issue so that it's at the forefront of people's pages and it's at the forefront of their minds. And that's in many ways like one of the very first steps that necessitates the the further steps. So if somebody hasn't engaged with the subject because they haven't come across it enough in a way that sticks their mind, then they're unlikely to take other actions later on in the chain. So it's a very important first step and it requires everybody's participation to make sure that these these things are just circulating and remain visible. The second thing is boycott. So the BDS movement, the boycott, uh, divest and sanctions movement is premised on the idea that consumer choices and our general choices have an impact on shaping the narrative and shaping the political climate and ultimately shaping the behavior of firms um, in the long run. So for example, if you buy um, hand cream 
and you see that the olives that were made that were used in the hand cream were made in israel by you boycotting that that brand and not using that brand it means that they're going to have fewer people buying their products which means they're going to investigate why there's um, a dip in their numbers and when they see people posting about their brand and the fact that their brand is associated with um, with Palestinian deaths then of course that's going to shape their calculus on whether they continue to operate in that country for international firms or for firms that have presence in multiple locations, that might just be the difference for between them staying in that country and them choosing to actually think twice about whether they produce things in Israel. And beyond it changing the opinions or shaping the calculus of the firms that are producing the goods in Israel, it also shapes the consumers of those products in Israel itself because they as well will be privy to the, to the online um, discourse it might very be the reason why they decide to take more of an active stance against their state or might be the reason why they decide to start having conversations about the rights of Palestinians within Israel or this, the general stance of their government against Palestinians. So the digital activism really is about inspiring people to think about things and have conversations that they wouldn't have if these things weren't at their forefront of their minds by virtue of them seeing it all the time. So first you've got the digital activism that makes people aware of the issue and makes them have difficult conversations and engage politically and psychologically with the with the Palestinian cause. And then that naturally flows into people making consumer choices around what they buy and from whom that can possibly shift the needle somewhat in how Palestinians um, treated treated by Israel. So the idea being that by starving Israeli firms of money, one, it means that the the Israeli state has less money just by virtue of taxes, for example, but it also creates a climate of hostility against the firms that are staying silent on the issue, and then also anger that is directed towards the state in that political or business interests are suffering because of how they are treating Palestinians. And we actually know that one of uh, one of the ways that is very powerful in changing. Uh, business practices so firms that typically try to take an apolitical quote-unquote stance on issues even though of course like I said there's no such thing they are only really brought or forced to change when we do boycott their products because then they are forced to engage because their margins are margins are, are um, affected essentially and sometimes when we look at popular movements we can actually get the order of change wrong so we can think that it's because firms take political stances on things that things change um, when it's actually the reverse, it's that people take stances on things and then firms are forced to change because the people have decided to change their consumer behavior. And when we think about apartheid, for example, or the civil rights movement in the US, that's literally what happened. It's because people got together and they boycotted many businesses that participated in these um, discriminatory practices. And then from that pressure came changes from those firms. And because those firms changed, they also peer pressured the government that you know kind of re um, relies on their business to continue to exist to change as well. So it's the same thing when we consider the Israel-Palestinian um, conflict in that what part of what sustains it is the fact that it still has some level of political support and that political support comes not only 
from the government level, it also comes from the business community, from all the firms that still continue to have franchises in Israel or still continue to do business with the state of Israel. Companies like, for example, Starbucks or McDonald's or or any number of, of companies. There's actually a great list online you can go and see where companies stand on the Palestinian um, conflict and you will see what they said in response to the the genocide in, in Palestine and also what their stance is in terms of Israel. And that can basically inform whether you continue to shop from them or not. The second last thing I'll talk about before I wrap up the episode is also the value of education and awareness. And I don't mean in general terms, like just educate yourself. I mean generally having the power behind the words that you say because I think part of the nervousness of speaking about an issue in general even just outside the Palestine Palestine Israel um, discourse is when you don't feel like you have enough information or you feel like you're not knowledgeable enough on a subject then of course you're going to be hesitant to speak about things publicly and you're going to be hesitant to defend your position in front of other people because you're just not quite sure that you have the facts right so the value of reading around it and it doesn't have to be you're going to spend all day at the library you can just go and find an author that you know is credible and uh, authoritative on the subject i really recommend noam chomsky and this other author called yan pape they've been writing on the israel-palestine conflict for a very long time specifically chomsky i can definitely vouch for for over 40 years and so when you pick up a, a dedicated book on the subject and you read it from beginning to end when it comes time to engaging with the discourse you're coming from a much more informed position and because it's much more informed you're much more likely to feel confident engaging in the discourse in a way that is meaningful it also means that you have ready-made answers for some of the typical challenges that people who support Israel say to you. So sometimes when you're in a discussion and somebody's aggressively defending Israel, which I would say probably in this climate isn't that often, then having read some um, credible information, you have ready answers prepared that you can defend the position against or just counter problematic things that they say because sometimes there's nothing worse than somebody saying something to you that is outrageous and in your heart and in your being you know it's outrageous but you just can't articulate at that moment why it is that what they're saying is offensive or is outrageous and that comes from not having done enough research to be able to have easy examples to hand the value of education and awareness as well is that you're able to bring it in a non-adversarial way to your friends and family. So you can talk about what's happening to uh, to the Palestinians. You can talk about the Hamas issue in a way that's informed and in a way that allows the conversation not to be derailed from the actions that Israel takes even outside of this October 7th attack and not allow for the justification that's being given by the Israeli government to be what is accepted by the discourse because obviously it's a perversion of what's actually gone on from the from the time before October 7th and then the final thing is to be activist in the way that you vote so go to vote participate in your voting and obviously participate at all various levels like for example in the UK we're going to have a general election but before the general elections there's loads of smaller elections that lead up to the general election same as in the US it's not as though the presidential elections are the the only thing that you can participate in and in many respects by the time it gets to the presidential elections then many of the policies have already been integrated into the incoming government so it's you have to vote at the 
community level, at the city level, and engage with your local representative in a way that is meaningful because sometimes we forget that they are accountable to us and that they hold public office and they're supposed to be responsive to our queries and our questions. And the reason why it's important to engage politically and electorally in this way is because ultimately why Israel continues to be able to kill Palestinians without any recourse is because they've got political support from powerful countries. And that political support isn't just in the rhetoric that they use, in the words that they use, in the ideology that they perpetuate. It's also in the finances and the military support that they um, extend to Israel indefinitely. So engaging in the electoral system and voting when it's time to vote and voting at various levels means that you're in a position to directly influence the actions of our own governments in how they support Israel in what Israel does against the Palestinians. And that's quite a clear direct link and it's a highly impactful link that we can break. And also it's worth mentioning that all these individual actions, no matter how big, how small, all have a cumulative effect and all contribute towards making some change. Because ultimately when we think about what causes no change to happen is to take no action. So taking some level of action, even if it's a small action, even if it's resharing an article or posting an article or speaking up when you wouldn't normally speak up, still has more of a change or still has more of a chance to make a change than obviously doing nothing does. And so with that, that wraps up this week's episode. So last week, I promised I would get this in for Monday night. Unfortunately, it's 1 a.m. here in the UK, so I've missed the Monday deadline. But, you know, it's still technically kind of Monday because nobody's woken up for Tuesday, at least in the UK. So apologies for the delay again, and hopefully I'll get it in before midnight um, next week. So thanks again for tuning in. If you liked the episode and you had comments that you'd like me to engage in, you can reach out to me by email, which is in the in the episode description. Um, you can also link me on uh, Twitter. I've gotten a page that honestly I don't check that much, but every now and again I do. Um, and until next time, thank you so much and catch you on the next episode.